0: So joining our series on today's episode is Len Warson, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of Glenville, one of the country's oldest and most successful property development groups with a history dating back some 64 years. Len, pleasure having you as a guest on our series. From a macro perspective to begin, I'd be interested in, in getting an understanding of the key themes that are driving activity across markets at the moment.
1: Look, it's, an, it's a really interesting question at this time because of you know we're in the post-COVID or maybe not post-COVID period so we're predominantly a residential player but you know you we certainly see the markets across the spaces so we, we all know industrials and and warehouses booming because of the, the change in online and, and distribution being here in Cremorne we've seen that a lot of businesses have moved out of the city and trying to make it more palatable or easier or friendly to their staff so You know, the Cremorne area and some of the suburban hotspots have become really strong as uh, offices and businesses relocate here. And um, the residential market has seen unprecedented boom in um, a variety of spaces. Uh, The first home buyer space, with all the grants and, again, enhanced with the budget last night, has gone through the roof. Uh, We've seen um, the holiday market change with people you know, believing they can work away from, from the, the office. So we've seen that market boom. And we are seen a sort of a change in what people want and they're sort of valuing their home a lot more. So we're seeing the actual requirements within, within a residential property change.
0: So then in terms of major industry specific issues, take us through some of the challenges that are being experienced by residential developers like yourself at the moment.
1: The biggest problem at the moment is supply chain and trade shortage, and that's causing hyperinflation in the industry. I suppose also that's caused by this pent-up demand, the government expended into infrastructure, etc. So we've got a situation where we all know about the supply chain from overseas and the shipping and all of that, and that's just one issue. But a lot of building products are produced in Australia and the close contact rules, one person in a factory gets COVID, the whole factory's out, my window supply is out five months, there's a trade shortage. So we're seeing the cost escalation getting out of control. I, I suppose the Russian scenario too, doesn't help with timber and other products. So all in all, we're seeing inflation running at about 0.4% per week in detached housing. Apartments is not that, not that great. But we're in that position, what do you do? Do you fix price a contract? Well, you probably can, but you have to reprice it at a later stage. Uh, With apartments, what do you do? Do you sell now and have have great uncertainty about the build price? We're selling in one market, building in another price market. So these are all the issues that we're currently facing uh, in the industry, and it's coming from the cost side, not from the revenue side.
0: You've been a a part of building Melbourne's urban fabric for over three decades now. To what extent have recent events, particularly over, say, the past 12 to 24 months, damaged the city's reputation? And then the second part of that is, how long do you think it will be before Melbourne rebounds to where it was a couple of years ago?
1: Good question. I mean, Melbournians live in Melbourne and we just sort of have to suck it up. But there's a lot of transiency, both from overseas and from interstate. And certainly within Australia, Melbourne's not seen right now as a high demand place. Um, We've dropped from the most livable city in the world, I think, to number seven within a a few years, probably for good reason. We're seeing certainly a lower demand for Melbourne from within Australia and even from outside Australia. You know, a lot of what we generate as far as migrants and internationals were concerned came from students. Now, we've seen a lot of students go online They've enrolled into a course and if they have done it in person and they've gone to Italy or whatever, they have to finish that course, they're not coming back here. So we're seeing the international market's going to take a lot longer than we think because it was driven by the student market. We'll see the lower economic person in, at the lower side, they'll always want to come in and that will grow, but it's all going to take a bit of time.
0: Before we move on, a major point of interest, as you know, amongst developers is the lending and financing environment. What themes are you seeing in this regard?
1: Money's easy to get. So easy. It's funny, because interest rates are so low, people are looking for ways of getting some return. Whilst the private money is really strong, the banks are still, you know, your standard four banks aren't really major lenders in the property development space. They're major, obviously, in the home loan space, but not in the property development space. But people are looking for homes for money to, to get some return. So the amount of money available and the terms available for a property developer are unprecedented.
0: I want to change tack and briefly explore your background in the history of the Glenville business. I understand it was incorporated in 1958 by your father, Michael, who was a quantity surveyor prior to becoming a home builder. Talk to us a little about your family and, and the history of the business, if you could.
1: Yeah, my father came to Australia, studied surveying in Italy and then uh, started detached home building, first home in Box Hill. He was very different to me, he was a real optimist. Um, I'm, I'm much more of a realist as he would have said. And he grew the business in lots of different ways and property development and the likes. Had some unfortunate situations on the journey, sold out to Mainline, uh, who was the biggest construction company in the Southern Hemisphere. They went to receivership. So it caused Glenville to to go from the second biggest builder in the country to a small company in in Melbourne, which never really recovered. When I got involved in the business, I'm a creative. Um, So to me, I wasn't really interested in volume. I was really interested in architecture and design. So I took the housing business into the direction of architecture and opened up the first super village and displays and all of that type of stuff. Started design and construct as an industry that ever existed, first in a suburban display home. A lot of those type of innovations. So that's a direction I've sort of taken Glenville in. Even when we got into property development, the projects we do are all really interesting. They're creatively challenged, they're emotionally challenged. You know, they're they're charged in in that sort of way, which is very different to where the history was. But I've been very fortunate that I've got the brand of like a super safe company. On the other hand, we're seen as leaders in the industry which is a bit unusual because normally when you're safe and financially safe and that, you're not, you don't have those, the two images together. So yeah, that's sort of the direction I've always headed. And it doesn't really matter what space we're in. We're always trying to
0: change the way things are done. So you became CEO of the business in 1991. Talk to me about your ascension to the role and then how you went about refocusing the, the business on the areas that you wanted to really concentrate on and, and be known for.
1: Yeah, so when I came into the business, I'd come from accounting. I was an insolvency accountant and I was 24. My father gave me the housing business. He had property development and other things. And I honestly didn't know anything about it. I I you know, apart from what you learn around the kitchen table, I really didn't understand it. It took a while, but I was put in there as an administrator. There was no leadership in the company. And within one year, everybody came to me for decisions. So a year later, I just assumed the role of general manager running the business at 25 and had to learn it while I was in it. And so I made radical changes at that point and took the business down a more architectural path because I felt there was an opening in that business. Very difficult because the staffing that were available at that time, had no understanding of design. It was a real volume mentality of, you know, your typical outer suburban bland home. I was reliving a story yesterday, how um, I put stone bench tops in on a kitchen and like nobody had any idea what I was talking about. (laughs) And we had to invent the way of putting stone bench tops in. I'd seen it in Europe, right? You know, the super upmarket architects in Melbourne were doing it but it wasn't really known and we brought that into volume housing. So a lot of those type of things were changed and, and that's where we got our success from because we brought innovation to an industry that was fairly boring.
0: And where did that passion for design and, and architecture originate from? Is it based on your Italian heritage or some, some other influence that you had in the in well, early My
1: my heritage is actually Polish, (laughs) Um, but my mother was unbelievably creative. Whilst she never used it in a business sense, she had an eye for colour and design that I have never ever seen before. You go to the, you know, the galleries, museums now and you see these furniture pieces that become iconic pieces. I grew up with all that stuff, you know, it was what she had, what she picked. So I got that from her and I was much more like her, but I learned from my father around, around the kitchen table.
0: <laughs> and before we explore the, the Glenville business in greater detail, perhaps take us through the prevailing themes and trends at the time in that early 90s uh, throughout the 2000s period with regard to the housing sector and then also how you've seen the preferences of consumers change over time.
1: As I said earlier, I mean, a lot of the changes that, that we brought through were stuff like stone bench tops and, and, and items like that. But the big change was bringing architecture into volume housing. And I can't say we were doing volume, but we were sitting in that space. So, you know, voids, I remember, was a huge fashion in the early mid 90s where you'd have two story voids and floating staircases. We went through the period of French provincial and Georgian and arched windows, and um, I remember precast moulds. You know, to create a French home, you, they didn't exist, so we had to create all of those type of products to get the outcome we needed. At the time, the big player in furniture was Freedom Furniture, and I remember Freedom Furniture made Italian design affordable, and we were trying to do exactly the same in housing. We saw. Coming into the late 90s, the almost removal of the dining room and that big kitchen family opening up into the back, which then led to an alfresco and other type of things. And we're, as we're seeing now, the lounge room is converting into a walled room that can become a cinema or a theatre or whatever it is. We're seeing in en-suite for every bedroom. Multi-purpose rooms were something we brought in for the kids upstairs, so the kids had their own retreat zone. Now, apart from architecture, it hasn't been that much change. When you when you actually think about it, you still come in the front door. You, your study often is near the front door, often not. You still have your powder room, your laundry, your kitchen, your kitchen, your meals, your family. It opened up, yeah, but that opened up before my time, and you still have the bedrooms upstairs. En suites became more glamorous. Uh, they were very functional in the early days and it's just architecture that's changed. We're now seeing technology in automation and sustainability and we're seeing you know, all of that movement um, come into play right now.
0: So as I understand it, the company has four distinct divisions, being Glenville Developments, Glenville Homes, Glenville Projects and A Place. What prompted the evolution and diversification of the business from being a home builder to now being a developer and and expanding across various other fields as well?
1: So we started with Glenville Homes and we're in the art market. I couldn't get staff for Glenville Homes because it was art market and needed experienced people. I didn't like the attitude in the building industry of be right, mate So I decided that I'd start a simple building company where I can train people and bring them through. And that business has now gone way, way, way past Glenville Homes. I then started a project construction business, which was sort of sensitive at the time because we had very strong unions and that was sensitive. So we started that. And through the journey, being creative, I loved property development because every project is a bit different and creatives love change. So I started doing projects on the side And then um, it got to a point where I decided that, you know, I prefer property development to be the major part of the business. So it just, it was sort of a natural evolution for me.
0: And reflecting on each of those divisions, where are you seeing the greatest level of opportunity at the moment?
1: Opportunity right now is stifled by cost. You can't grow. You you have to... I don't want to let anybody down. So I don't want to sell what I can't build. So right now, the opportunity is stifled, but... Pre-COVID, there was great opportunity in, in all areas. Um, I think that there's opportunity everywhere. I can't really say that, that one's better than the other. We go through different periods where Greenfield's hot or inner Suburbans hot or apartments are hot. So you just gotta navigate what you're serving to a degree based on the, the sentiment at the time. And that's the luxury that I've got, that if one market's hot, I can go into that, but if it's not, I can back away. You know, the business can move around and serve different things based on the economy, which has made us incredibly stable over the
0: time. Speaking of stability and longevity, how has the business been able to remain on a financial footing, a stable financial footing for so long, and weather cyclical changes in the market?
1: I suppose being an insolvency accountant by heritage which I always joke is the corporate cemetery. I've always been very conservative financially. We've always had very, very limited debt. So the operating businesses don't have any debt. We've gone steady. No big rises, steady growth. We grow when we can afford to. We slow down when we can't. And we've just been incredibly cautious about the way we go about it.
0: The other theme that's prevalent across the business is this idea of innovation and constantly innovating. What, what drives your passion to think outside the box and, and try and innovate every project, whether you need to or not?
1: Well, I'm a creative by nature. You know, it's funny, when I look at people I admire in the world, they're all creatives. I don't really care how much money you've made or, or any of that, it's sort of irrelevant to me. So creativity is, is really hard work. It's really easy to do what you know it's really hard to do what hasn't been done before. So that in itself is a huge challenge. The passion comes from pushing. It it just is far more interesting doing what hasn't been done. You know, if you keep walking the same route all the time, that route becomes boring. You start walking a different path. It's far more interesting. Business is no different. So to me, changing that path is really interesting. Now, we get so busy that it's hard to get the time to push boundaries because creatives don't work nine to five. Creatives work 24 hours a day, which is why we're all bad sleepers. That constant thinking, you know, you're either the type of person that's going to walk down a corridor and know the goal is to open that door at the end, or you're going to be the type of person that gets distracted by that door and open it and walk down there and distracted by another door, another door, and another door and probably get lost. And you've got to remember that your goal was down there, but that's what creatives do. They keep opening doors. And that's just me. I've got to recognise that a lot of people around me don't like change. So you've got to be very moderated the way you bring it in. But I remember when we did, Bend, and I brought all my stakeholders into a room and I said, let's create the best suburb in the world. And I said, and don't give me one suggestion that any other developer does. Blank piece of paper, let's think of ideas. The first person said an idea that came straight out of Mervac and I said, if you say something like that again, you're out of the room. I said, fresh ideas. I said, let me make it easy. What are the biggest problems we have in the world in, in living at home? What are the biggest problems? And I said, I'll start. There's often times I want to take my printer or my Foxtel box or my laptop and I want to throw it against the wall because I'm so frustrated it doesn't work. How do we fix that problem in the best suburb in the world? Then we thought about it and came up with a tech concierge idea. Solving issues generally leads to creative outcomes. That's how Yarra Bend was born, as an example. We pushed boundaries from a blank sheet of paper of what issues do we need to fix that haven't been.
0: Whilst we're on the topic of Yarra Bend, it was purchased by yourself and Guy Nelson in 2013 for around about 120 million. Before we get into the the project itself, how did did that project come across your desk and, and what was the vision for it that you saw? Firstly, Guy bought 20%
1: of the site, and Glenville bought 80%. We were joint acquirers, but for separate parcels. So the vision came from an opportunity to create a new suburb. You don't get that often in your lifetime, not in a suburban. For me, personally, the key was, don't waste that opportunity, create something special. It was a unique situation where you really had a close suburb in a beautiful location with, you know, you're a river. You felt like you're in Eltham on one side, another side you're yeah, next to Yuppie Central, you know, neck on the other side you're near, uh, you know, you know, family homes of Ivanhoe. So you've got this incredible suburb that sort of you could pick any of the identities or different identities or mixed, a bit like South Yarra or Carlton, which has very eclectic flavour. It's starting point gave you great opportunity. How it came across my desk was um, at the time, we'd just finished a project in Northcote called the Coterie. We were cashed up and my development director at the time was X lendlease Acquisition Manager and we drove past the site as we were coming back from the Coterie and we were looking for a townhouse site and he said, what about this site over here? I said, you've got to be joking. (laughs) And I said, what, what do they want for it? And he said, oh, they're looking for about 140 million plus they want you to clean up the site. He said, but that does, it just doesn't work. And nobody was interested. Interestingly enough, he said, look, we could, we could package it this way. And maybe if it's too big, we could buy the site, break it up and sell bits. And then we can keep bits for ourselves. Anyway, from that, I then went home. Coincidentally, the agent who had that listing my oldest daughter was actually dating a guy from that agency who said to his boss, you know, Len might be interested, later, da-da-da-da. Guy had got his hands on the site under an option and had come to me because he knew I was interested through all of that. And at the end of the day, Amcor was also very concerned about the financial ability to settle. So Guy had his option, but they limited the amount he could buy. And basically, I wasn't capped and they sold me 80 percent of the science and the terms were completely different to that which they were seeking earlier
0: and how's it evolved over time and has there been any components that have surprised you about it at all
1: yeah i mean financially there's a well-known court case around the cleanup so the lack of being paid huge money slowed down the project substantially and meant my return of equity has been much slower Which probably really only matters when you're looking at your IRRs and things like that rather than whether you need the money or not and it's it's surprised us in getting firstly getting a permit we had 1800 objectors and we got them all across the line they all supported the application unanimous decision out of the council couldn't believe it that shocked us apart from that really there's been lots of surprises but typical business surprises not you know, costs going up or down or or whatever we had the vic roads all of a sudden one part of our land for the like chandler highway widening the way they handled the situation was a bit of a surprise but i think pretty much the project will end up what i'm expecting it's a new really interesting suburb architecturally interesting we've made it really difficult for ourselves every building effectively is a different architect because we want to create that sort of south yarra carton eclectic feeling we don't want one look one feel one flavor but it's just slower than we thought because of you know the constraints we had but yeah no real surprises apart from what i said
0: and what's the timeline for completion? I mean, obviously it's a, it's a major project. There's a significant strategic master plan in place. How long do you think it, the whole project will be completed?
1: Well, we've effectively almost sold out apart from the river. So the riverfront, which is the Rolls-Royce bit. So we're now in the stages where we're delivering majority of the project, um, all the facilities and amenity and all of that. And then we'll move into the river precinct in about a year. So we'll probably be out of there in four years. I hope we are. (laughs) You get, it's really interesting. The biggest surprise was you get project fatigue. Projects have gone for too long, fatigue you. So you go in and out of this passion, I'm tired of it, passion, I'm tired of it, type scenario. And I'm probably in one of those, I'm tired of it at the moment, (laughs) stages. Although I think we're about to, you know, we're about to press reset and re-go for it. And it'll be really exciting for the
0: the next few years. It must be said that there is also another major project on the go in the Belfield estate in Melbourne's north. Prior to acquiring an asset of this size, what's the, the process that's undertaken internally from a feasibility standpoint?
1: Well, you obviously test it in every which way. You check your build, you check your revenue numbers. Bellfield's an interesting one. It's a suburb nobody's ever heard of, including me, that sits between Heidelberg and Ivanhoe. It's a bit like Alpington, nobody had heard of it, although that was slightly better known than Bellfield. It's a pretty big site and it's half the suburb, no different to Yarra Bend and Alphington. We know the area pretty well um, because we've done so much in the north. From a revenue perspective, the due diligence you have to do is, what do you think you can get? That was a council sale, so it's not about price. You know, it's about what you're going to deliver as well. So there was a lot of due diligence on the sustainability space and the green space, the product delivery, what we were going to do. How do you make the project better and to us that's really important we try to get a great sense of what the community want we're incredibly empathetic developers so we really did care about what the community wants so we really studied that the community doesn't appreciate it straight away i've got to say right they think developer change bullying tactics we're nothing like that but it takes time and they understand it and we've had great support from council in the community on that project as well like we've had out of Yarra Bend. So we do a lot of due diligence in that space. Um, you've got to check you know, everything from, you know, what trees you have to retain to what the environmental cleanup is required to, you know, titles, you know, it was an issue over titles, you know, who owned what road, et cetera. So there's a lot in a lot of different directions.
0: I thought we'd close out our discussion by exploring a few more general topics, including about Len Warson, the person. Firstly, I'd be interested to to get your understanding. You've been in and around property for many decades now. What mistakes have you made and and what lessons have you learned off the back of those mistakes?
1: I've made every mistake. Uh, (laughs) uh, I, I tell people I don't blame me. I say, I'm not a natural businessman, I'm an artist. So I've had to learn business. People don't believe me, but that's it. What have I learned? I'm too cautious. Is that a mistake? I say every negative has a positive and vice versa. Could have taken a lot more debt and become a lot wealthier, but I have nothing to complain about. So, you know, that doesn't matter. Um, I probably kept people too long, you know, uh, in the early part of my career. Everybody's going to say that. I'm too gentle. It's okay, it works for me. I've made lots of mistakes. Too much change, people can't handle it. But at the end of the day, what have I learned? And all my staff make mistakes, and they learn from it, and that's a positive thing, you know? If you don't hit the ball out, you ain't gonna learn. If you make the mistake and don't learn, that's problematic. The thing I've learned is that mistakes are not a negative. They can be a positive, and they can save you from the big mistake later on. I'm making a lot less mistakes now, but I'm watching my staff make a lot more. And my role is very much to teach them what to do about those mistakes and how to be better. And and I've got a very, very young executive team. Most of my executive team is in their young to mid thirties. So I'm watching them like a hawk. And because I have made all the mistakes, I can see them just duplicating my mistakes, but making sure they don't do them again and trying to make sure the damage is not too great. But the beauty of that, I guess, is that as an organisation, we're incredibly young and youthful energy, but at the same time, we've got this maturity sitting on the top. Uh, A bit like a footy team where you get, I feel like I'm that coach, and then I've got all the experience, I can watch these guys, and I've got this sort of elite team of young guys um, with some senior people underneath them. So, yeah, I, I feel that I've learned from every mistake and I can't even start to remember every mistake I've made because there are just far too many.
0: <laughs> so you've got a, a youthful team, a youthful executive team. I think you mentioned off camera about 120 odd staff. What are the most important leadership qualities do you think is in, in your role as the coach?
1: You've got to be um, create a great environment. You've got to create an environment where they're not scared to make a call. You've also, successful leaders have got big egos. So you need to be able to harness their egos, because if you don't have a big ego, you won't be successful, but there's a negative and positive to that. So you've got to harness that negative side and make sure it doesn't get in the way. I'm viewing these guys and making sure that they're taking the right steps and ego is not getting in the way of the wrong decision. Growth plans, they all want to grow. The young generation hasn't seen failure, they haven't seen a recession. And what they think is a recession is not a recession. So I have to educate them on caution. Now that's probably worked against me for the last 20 years, but they will get a day when it matters. I have to teach them how to manage people. You know, most of these great leaders, they're very good at their job, but knowing how how to manage troops is a very different kettle of fish. And how you respect the people underneath you, and just because you've grown quickly, you just don't want that ego to take over. So managing people, how you put structure and disciplines in place, and procedures and processes. The way i describe it is like this. When somebody gets to a senior executive role, I tell them to imagine themselves being a pilot in a plane and they're not allowed to get out of that seat. They've got to sit there and know everything that's going on in that plane. So every gauge in front of them has to tell them what's going on. And there are too many gauges to look at, so you need a light system that comes on to tell you what's, what's failing. I try to educate them in, in the concept of putting reporting processes in place that allow you to know everything. And that goes all the way down to your clients, because generally we don't know what our clients feel. How do we know they're happy or unhappy? And yes, you can do surveys and things like that, but your reporting has to go all the way down to every single detail on every single part of your business, so that nothing can get you without you knowing.
0: Two more before we close out our discussion. We mentioned and we explored mistakes earlier. On the flip side of that, what are your proudest achievements?
1: I remember being, um, I was hoping you'd ask the question which I was asked at a realestate.com national conference when I was on stage and somebody said to me, what's the best business decision you've ever made? And I remember thinking about that and after a few minutes I said, I married well that way, I never gave away 50%. But uh, <laughs> I think my proudest achievements, honestly, has been some of my young staff. Some of them have got equity now. Some of their growth has just made me so proud, you know? I guess it's like being a coach and seeing one of your players get a brownlow low or something, you know? It's just, it's, to, to me, that that's, gives me great satisfaction. I think Yarra Bend has been really satisfying. Um, seeing the delivery of that. Some of those buildings are seriously beautiful and you go through it and you know, the planning's great. It all makes sense. In housing, I just see a beautiful home, a happy client, and honestly, that's, that makes me feel great. When people are happy, I'm
0: happy. It must be said, outside of business, you're heavily involved in various philanthropic pursuits. What drives your interest and passion in this field? I sort of have two
1: streams. One is in the arts and that's come from the creative space and visual arts is a, is, is a big thing for me. And the other one is housing. I've created wealth um, out of housing and I see that as um, a philanthropic side where homeless kids through the Lighthouse Foundation or housing in Cambodia for people who don't have houses. So I, I sort of see that as a natural connection of me to give back in a way that houses people and and that's sort of been the the two directions for me.
0: Len Wilson, the Doyen of the industry, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of Glenville as I mentioned, pleasure sitting down with you this morning and look forward to continuing to watch the growth of the business into the future.
1: Thank you very much, thanks for your time.